This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington, and joining us in studio is David Wasserman. He is the House Editor for the Cook Political Report, and I think you know more about congressional races than anyone else in the country. Well, I don't know. We, uh, there are some, some good competitors we have out there as well. So, uh, uh, But we try our best to cover all the races we can. We asked you to stop by in part to assess where this race is right now following Super Tuesday, but I want to begin with what you wrote for the New York Times. In many ways, what people buy, eat, and wear is just another lens through which to view the growing political divide between Americans with college degrees and those without. Can you elaborate? Sure. So the premise of my piece was that uh, Democrats are increasingly concentrated in upscale retail communities uh, where uh, their votes are inefficiently distributed for purposes of winning the Electoral College. And what I did was, uh, with the help of a few geocoders and stats whizzes, uh, I matched uh, the locations of 100 different popular U.S. retail chains with precinct data going back over the last three presidential elections. And there are over 177,000 precincts in the country. And what we found was that the four chains that correlated most strongly with Democratic support were uh, Whole Foods Market, Lululemon Athletica, the Apple Store, and Urban Outfitters. And we found that there were more down-home chains like Hobby Lobby, Cracker Barrel, Bass Pro Shop, Tractor Supply that correlated pretty strongly with where Republicans are growing in in, uh, in vote share. And so, you know, these Democrats uh, who are are um, celebrating kind of the, the urbanization of the country uh, and their progress in the suburbs in 2018 should be aware that not uh, not a majority of Americans live really close to the the uh, the kinds of bubbles that where uh, where Democrats are are growing their vote share. In fact, many of the suburbs that uh, that are decisive in battleground states are more culturally conservative suburbs, and so that's part of the challenge when it comes to Democrats building a broad enough coalition to win the Electoral College. And so, as you point out, we really are moving for the Democrats from the labor halls to the shopping malls. Right. Or I think the way I put it was that uh, Democrats, once dominant in labor halls, are now the party of Galleria malls. So what have you learned? What surprised you the most in putting all of this together? When uh, when we first started uh, piecing this together, uh, you know, it, it was pretty clear that uh, that Democrats have done better and better with uh, white college graduates than they did in past years, and they've essentially traded that support uh, uh, in exchange for, for uh, you know the, the the losses that they've suffered among uh, whites without college degrees, and so that that inversion in the electorate where the Democratic Party is becoming the, the party increasingly of pro- professional whites in addition to, to most non-white voters uh, is something that's been going on for a long time. In 2016, that really accelerated. And Hillary Clinton not only saw um, a, a precipitous decline in, in the share of, um, of whites without college degrees who were voting for Democrats, but there was lower 
uh, turnout among non-white voters, and she won smaller shares or smaller margins among non-white voters than Barack Obama had. And so really the, the places where Democrats have accelerated are those upscale retail whole, whole Foods bubbles. What we saw in the 2020 primary so far was that uh, the candidates who had a lot of support among voters in those bubbles, which is where a lot of of uh, media and pundits tend to, to live, uh, candidates like Elizabeth Warren had a hard time expanding their support because those bubbles make up such a small share of the electorate. Only 34 percent of America's voters live within five miles of any of those Whole Foods-esque chains I mentioned. And in fact, two-thirds of the country lives closer to one of those more culturally conservative chains than those upscale retail chains. So in many respects, this really isn't your father's or grandfather's Republican or Democratic Party. We're seeing some really key demographic shifts in these parties. That's right. And in the 1990s, when Bill Clinton was successful in winning two terms in the White House, and to some extent in 2008 and 2012, a lot of Uh, middle-income, more secular parts of the Midwest voted for Democrats because they saw Republicans as the party of rich people and Bible thumpers who wanted to impose their moral values on the country. What we're seeing today is that those voters might have less in common with, you know, more um, hipster Democrats in some urban areas of the country than, uh, than the Republican Party, which is on the rise Uh, in those tractor supply and cracker barrel zones. And why the change? Why this shift? What do you attribute it to? Part of it is Donald Trump. He mutated the the ideology of the Republican Party in 2016, away from one that emphasized uh, social conservative wedge issues like abortion and gay marriage. Uh, In fact, I think the Supreme Court decision helped accelerate uh, that that, uh, uh, shift away from those issues. Uh, or at least on gay marriage. And he emphasized trade and immigration uh, in uh, a set of issues where he had some commonalities with many of the Democrats in small town America who who used to cast ballots for Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. And you point out, and you mentioned this earlier, some of the down-home zones, places like Saginaw, Michigan, Green Bay, Wisconsin, or Erie, Pennsylvania. Right. And They are concentrated, these down-home zones, in states that are decisive in the Electoral College. And so, you know, look, Democrats are doing better and better on the coasts. They're expanding their margins in California and Virginia, which is now a state that's off the table, uh, has exited stage left uh, from the Electoral College battleground. They're doing better and better in Texas without really being on the cusp of winning it statewide, although we'll see over the next couple months whether... Uh, whether Joe Biden or or whoever the Democratic nominee is can make a play for Texas. But the six states where Trump won by less than 5% of the vote in 2016, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, if you take those states together, then only uh, 29% of their voters uh, live in upscale retail bubbles compared to 34% of the nation as a whole, which tells you that these clusters where Democrats are doing better and better, they're inefficiently distributed uh, for Democrats' purposes of trying to beat Donald Trump, and they really threaten to widen the gap between the Electoral College and the popular vote. 
Let me remind our listeners we are talking with David Wasserman of the Cook Political Report and his recent New York Times headline, To Beat Trump, Democrats May Need to Break Out of the Whole Foods Bubble. Let me ask you about these two stores, Whole Foods and the restaurant chain Cracker Barrel. Why did you select those two? Well, this whole kitschy analysis was inspired by uh, a column that Charlie Cook had written back, actually before I met him. He's my boss now. But back when I was in college, uh, I read this column he had written in National Journal Magazine where he hypothesized if you lived closer to a Starbucks, you were more likely to vote for Democrats. And if you lived closer to a Walmart, you were more likely to vote for Republicans. And so what I did uh, for a college paper was I decided to plot out Starbucks and Walmart locations in Virginia where I was going to college. And uh, and evaluate whether he was right. And so I've turned it into my professor, and my professor passed it along to Charlie Cook, and that's how I got an internship uh, with the Cook Report and eventually a job. But I was thinking back, you know, in 2010 or 11, uh, as to whether these two chains are, were still predictive because, uh, you know, both Starbucks and Walmart had reached a point of ubiquity uh, by then. So I undertook a new retail analysis uh, and did it at the county level and found that the two best predictors of where the, the parties were gaining strength were Whole Foods for Democrats and Cracker Barrel for Republicans. Uh, I decided at the beginning of this decade what I wanted to do was was drill down to the precinct level. And what I found was that the two chains that are on, on the verge of overtaking Whole Foods and Cracker Barrel as the leading indicators are Lululemon uh, Athletica for for Democrats and the Tractor Supply Company for Republicans. Let's talk about Virginia because, as you mentioned, a graduate of UVA, and it is uh, really a microcosm of where the political parties have shifted and moved because, as you pointed out, Virginia, when I was growing up, was a solid Republican state. It then became a purple state and now very much appears, especially because of the Northern Virginia area and Norfolk, a pretty solid Democratic state. But it's really driven by Northern Virginia, and voters in that part of the state don't really take to Donald Trump's message in in 2016 uh, that uh, that you know America was was kind of corroding, and and uh, and they don't take to Bernie Sanders's message that uh, we need a, a revolution. Uh, for those voters, things are going pretty well. So many people say that this is the party of Donald Trump. At some point, he will leave uh, the national stage either next year or in four years. Has he forever changed the Republican Party, or do you think that the GOP will revert back to its old self? He's remade the Republican Party in his image, and the leading theme in the commercials that we see for Republican congressional candidates across the country right now is the extent to which they love and support the president. Uh, that is really the the only message that matters in a lot of these primaries. And having his endorsement is uh, isn't a guarantee of victory, but it, it does go a long way. And so, even after he's out of office, the potential that he could still be uh, be presiding over the Republican Party with a Twitter account, uh, you know, he will have an outsized influence. On, uh, on Republican politics for many, many years to come. And uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that uh, Republicans regard him uh, with the kind of, 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 you know, 
respect boarding, bordering on, on worshipful admiration that we heard many Republicans express for Ronald Reagan in past decades. So how do Republicans, either at the national level for the presidency or in congressional races, how do Republicans get the whole food vote and how do Democrats get the Cracker Barrel vote? Well, it would have been a lot easier if um, you had just slotted Bernie Sanders in as the Democratic nominee for Republicans to make a play for that Whole Foods vote because uh, Bernie Sanders' proposals to replace private health insurance with, uh, with a single-payer system do not play well in those Whole Foods suburbs uh, where voters pretty much like the health insurance that they have. Um, his proposals when it comes to um, to, you know, uh, free college tuition, uh, forgiveness of, of uh, student loans, uh, they they play well with uh, with young uh, blue collar voters in other pockets of the country, and so you know although Sanders was promising a revolution, the prospect of his nomination you know could actually turn back the clock a bit uh, and help Democrats do better in some more blue-collar parts of the country, some culturally conservative areas, but not do as well in the places where Democrats have been on the upswing lately. And in the case of Trump, um, you know, one thing that was really interesting in 2016 was his choice of a running mate because the group of Republicans that he uh, that were most skeptical of him coming out of the primaries were evangelical church-going Republicans who were hesitant about voting for a twice-divorced casino owner uh, as their nominee. Uh, but by picking Pence, he managed to bring a lot of those voters into the fold and offer them some rationale to come out and vote against Hillary Clinton. On, uh, or in terms of the, the 2020 race, uh, one thing that, that uh, you know, we hear speculation about is Trump replacing Mike Pence on the ticket with someone else. Well, I think that's going to be hard to do with Pence uh, heading up the coronavirus response right now. But uh, if he were to to try and make a play for um, more affluent suburban voters, could he go in the direction of someone like Nikki Haley? You know, that's that's been speculated quite a bit. And the question is whether that would appeal to those suburban women voters that may at the moment be turned off by Donald Trump. And then you got to question whether or not a VP pick really makes a big difference when you're the sitting president. Right. And my presumption is that it it might not help him that that this is a pretty clear referendum on on Trump as the president, uh, although Trump will do his best to make it more of a a choice between him and an unacceptable Democratic alternative. So let's talk about the state of this race, David Wasserman, really a seismic shift over the last week following Super Tuesday, a two-person race between Senator Sanders and former Vice President Joe Biden. And of course, the Republicans trying to go after now the perceived front runner, Joe Biden, wondering whether or not he has the stamina to withstand the campaign this fall and then to serve as president. What, what can we expect? So this race could be over soon. It could also be protracted. But if it's over soon, Joe Biden would become the presumptive Democratic nominee. And keep in mind, when you go through the results of Super Tuesday, Joe Biden came out ahead in the delegate count, you know, maybe by 50 delegates, it could be more than that. We'll, we'll see because California is going to take a long time to count. But keep in mind that a lot of the votes and a lot of the delegates that 
Bernie Sanders won on Super Tuesday were attributable to votes that were cast before South Carolina, before Buttigieg and Klobuchar dropped out of the race. He did best uh, when it came to the early vote in California and Texas and Colorado. Um, He got clobbered in the states that cast their ballots on Election Day, for the most part, states like Virginia, um, even in Massachusetts. That, those were statement wins for Joe Biden. And when you look ahead at the calendar at, uh, at states like Michigan, um, which you know f- almost entirely votes on Election Day, when you look at Florida and Georgia, states that are demographically very favorable to Joe Biden, because keep in mind, Bernie Sanders' base is very young. I'm not sure I see a path for Bernie Sanders. That's fascinating. So to that point, did the Democrats learn from the mistakes of 2016 with the Republicans, many staying in the race, Senator Cruz, Governor Kasich, longer than expected, giving Donald Trump the path to the nomination? Actually, one of the features that helped Donald Trump in 2016 was the fact that Republicans award their delegates to their convention on, a, on mostly a winner-take-all basis. And what that allowed Donald Trump to do was to win a large share of delegates with relatively small shares of the vote. For example, he won all 50 delegates in South Carolina with just about a third of the vote there. And that allowed him to wrap up the nomination in early May after Indiana, uh, which was three months before Bernie Sanders' supporters were still kind of banging down the, the barricades in Philadelphia at the Democratic convention. So even though Kasich and Cruz stayed in and prolonged the race, uh, Donald Trump still had a decent head start when it came to uniting the Republican Party, uh, whereas Hillary Clinton really had a hard time uniting the Democratic Party. And if you uh, evaluate the, the situation right now on the Democratic side, uh, Democrats' race appears closer than it is because Democrats award all of their delegates on a proportional basis. And so we could be looking at a delegate count that's fairly close uh, for some time, even though it uh, it would be uh, almost insurmountable uh, uh, in terms of the delegate lead that, that Joe Biden might have. And in this two-person race, a week, two weeks ago, people talking about a contested convention. We may not know the nominee until Milwaukee in July. That all seemed to have changed. That's right. And these things have a way of sorting themselves out. The other question here is, do Democratic voters have an interest in protracting this battle or do they want to rally around a presumptive nominee like they did in 2004 when John Kerry uh, decisively won several of the early states and Democratic voters kind of fell in line? Well, you know, back then, Democrats were pretty desperate to beat George W. Bush and they they wanted to to rally behind someone. We could see that happen here because Democrats are even more desperate to beat Donald Trump. And that's not to say that Joe Biden would enter the general election with an advantage. Based on what we saw in Iowa and to a lesser extent, uh, but still confusing in Nevada, are the days of the caucuses over in 2024, do you think? They very well could be. Uh, Look, the Iowa Democratic Party could still try to uh, try to maintain a caucus tradition by instituting some reforms to simplify uh, uh, the the process. Um, I had a conversation last year uh, when I was teaching uh, a, a course uh, at the University of Chicago. David Yepsen, who had been the longtime Des Moines Register um, political journalist, 
uh, friend he of told this me, network. We've yeah, talked to him often. Yeah, and he told me that he didn't think the caucus would survive because they were embarking on trying to to put out three different vote counts that they had satellite caucuses that they were having a new uh, app to try and count the results and he he thought this is just too complicated to work well and he ended up being absolutely correct and you know now democrats have to uh, have to evaluate you know do we move to a primary do we make it more like the republican iowa caucus where people um, drop a ballot in a box even though they attend in person and there's more of a straightforward count so um, there's a lot of a, a lot of thinking to do and, and you had to feel bad I, I felt bad for all of the candidates who spent over a year campaigning in iowa organizing spending a lot of time and a lot of money and because of the confusion, nobody gained a whole lot out of the Iowa caucuses. Who's the winner? You know, Joe Biden could point to the confusion and, and uh, the, the problems with the app. I mean, there was no decisive winner that uh, came out of that state. Right. And even though Mike Bloomberg is now out of the race, one thing that he was probably right about is that we treat these early contests with probably more importance than uh, than we should, given that, uh, you know, look, Joe Biden placed fourth in Iowa. He was fifth in New Hampshire and managed to come back and win uh, South Carolina. One of the, the lessons from all of this is that caucuses can be very unrepresentative of the the broader electorate that would turn out in a primary, especially ones that are held in overwhelmingly white states. So, you know, there was kind of a false impression over the course of February that Bernie Sanders had broad appeal in the Democratic Party. In reality, um, he managed to win the plurality of of, of caucus attendees, uh, but the caucus turnout was pretty poor. Uh, he he won New Hampshire, but he only won with twenty six percent of the vote. And in Nevada, he got thirty four percent of initial preference of those caucus goers. But it was reported uh, by a lot of the media as 47 percent because uh, once voters realigned and once uh, the uh, the delegate equivalents were assigned, um, that really added a winner's bonus. So he looked stronger than he really was. And it kind of created this false impression of what was happening in the race that was wiped out by South Carolina and Super Tuesday. David Wasserman, one thing a president can often not control, breaking news, the coronavirus is now front and center. The president's poll numbers have now dropped. Just how big of a deal is this in the terms of the voters and how the president has responded thus far? It's a huge deal. Look, there is a big concern, even among some voters who approve of the job he's doing on the economy, that when it comes to matters of national security, when it comes to crises, Trump operates on instinct and that he wings it. And that explains why we see a pretty big gap between his approval rating overall, which is stuck in the low 40s and has been ebbing a few points as coronavirus has has spread, and his approval rating when it comes to handling of the economy, which has been in the mid-50s. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that's taken a hit after the markets have fallen the past couple of weeks. Uh, and 
that really the gap that I'm watching to evaluate the fall race is uh, the, those voters who um, who like the job he's doing on the economy but dislike his handling of of um, his job overall. And he points to the stock market at yeah. most of his rallies. Right. Maybe not so much lately. Right. And to the extent that uh, coronavirus has has supplanted um, the economy as the as the news of the day, uh, you know that is perilous for his reelection chances. And doesn't impeachment seem so long ago? <laughs> right, and and American voters have such short attention spans, and that's one thing that um, is actually good news for a lot of the. 30 House Democrats sitting in districts Trump carried in 2016 because that was a vote that Republicans badly wanted to seize on. Now impeachment seems like a distant memory. Your piece looking at Whole Foods, Lululemon, Urban Outfitters, Apple, and Cracker Barrel, where you eat or shop often determines how you vote. Let me have you put on your House editor hat, if I could, for just a moment. For Republicans hoping to regain the House of Representatives this year, where do you put the chances? I wouldn't rule it out, but I would say they're considerable underdogs. I, I might give Democrats two out of three or three out of four odds of holding control of the House. And Republicans couldn't contain their excitement when Democrats nearly unanimous, unanimously voted for impeachment, when it looked like Bernie Sanders would be the front runner for the nomination. They thought, well, all these Democrats are going to have to endorse Bernie Sanders and we're going to tie them to democratic socialism. But even when Sanders was the favorite for the nomination, I was skeptical that Democrats were uh, were poised to lose their majority. And there were three reasons why. The first is that voters tend to vote strategically uh, in a lot of these upscale districts where Democrats won seats in 2018 and now have to defend them. In 2016, what we saw was uh, – Donald Trump lost a number of those districts in places like Orange County, California, or North Jersey. Uh, but Republicans still held on to those seats. And a big reason why was voters went to the polls thinking that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election. That's what the, the media and all of the pundits said was going to happen. And so they figured, well, if I don't like either candidate, I'm going to vote for a Republican as a check on Hillary Clinton. And so Republicans did fairly well in those districts. Well, fast forward to 2020, if it's apparent, if it would have been apparent that, you know, Trump was going to be beating Bernie Sanders, then those voters could say, well, I'm going to vote for a Democrat as a check on 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 Trump if he's going to be there another four years. Second reason is we really haven't seen Republicans capitalize on impeachment or Bernie's early momentum for fundraising or for recruitment. Uh, frankly, I was expecting that Republicans would see a surge of donations. But at the end of 2019, the average Democrat in an at-risk district had $1.4 million on hand, and the leading Republican in those seats only had 300000 So Republicans have a long way to go. Democrats can craft their message and separate themselves from the top of the ticket if need be. And the third advantage for, for Democrats is that they've got some offensive opportunities of their own. 
uh, Republicans are retiring at three times the rate of Democrats. We have 27 Republicans heading for the exits to just nine Democrats. Four of those Republican seats are majority minority seats, three in Texas, one in the Atlanta suburbs. If Democrats pick up those four seats, then all of a sudden Republicans need to pick up 22 Democratic seats to net 18, which is what they need for a majority. And then on top of that, the uh, North Carolina redistricting ruling essentially gives Democrats two seats for free, one in Raleigh and one in Greensboro. And when you add that in, Republicans might need to pick up 24 Democratic seats, not just 18. So that really makes their hill a lot steeper. So in our remaining minute, give us one race as we sit here in our studios in Washington, D.C. in early March. As you look at November, one race that could determine how things go. It's a great question. So there are a couple of races I'm watching, but, uh, you know, if I had to pick a, uh, a Democrat uh, who stands out uh, in our vulnerable column, it's uh, Colin Peterson from Minnesota. He represents a district that voted for Trump by 30 points. Uh, there's no other member of the House that represents a seat where the other party's president, presidential candidate got more than 55 percent. In his district, Trump got 61. And he is currently considering whether he wants to retire after 30 years. If he does, Republicans would likely pick up that seat. But a bellwether district that I'm watching is Virginia's 7th district, which is Abigail Spanberger in the Richmond suburbs. She managed to flip that seat in 2018, four years after Eric Cantor lost his primary there. Uh, And now Republicans badly want that seat back. Uh, The front runner for their nomination is a... um, a former Green Beret named Nick Freitas, and he's a state delegate. If he makes it out of the Republican convention and has the support of, um, of wealthy Republican donors who, who um, you know, want to set up a super PAC on his behalf, that could be a very, very challenging race for Abigail Spanberger, uh, a former CIA agent, to win a second term. But that's one of the ones Republicans probably need to win to have any shot at House control. David Wasserman, the House editor for the Cook Political Report, and his piece available online at nytimes.com to beat Trump. Democrats may need to break out of the Whole Foods bubble. We thank you for stopping by. Thanks so much, Steve. It's always a pleasure. And a reminder that this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you get your favorite podcast. And be sure to rate us and review us. We appreciate your comments. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for being with us.